So uh, why don't you introduce yourself, guest? Because I, I had a few questions right off the bat. Hey, yeah, I'm Ivan Novik. I'm at Pivotal. I'm a product manager who works on Pivotal Greenplum, which is a data analytics database um, used throughout throughout the world for storing and analyzing big volumes of data. So I, I was watching, uh, I think it was one of your videos. I was watching a video uh, essentially about Greenplum, but then it turned out delightfully to be a history of databases. Right. You did that one, right? Yeah, I, yeah, that, that was awesome. Yeah, done that a few times. So the question I had, I mean, just to boil it all down, like it was fun to see, like, you know, you got the, uh, I'm going to mess it all up, but there's basically like, you know, the Apollo mission has a database and then there's IBM and then there's still IBM, more IBM. Well, <laughs> Very it, IBM. Heavy, it's, but... It started with the census, the U.S. census back in, right. Right, with punch cards, right? You had punch card computers and the, the first yeah, yeah. usage was to add up all the people in the, country, in the U.S. and put them in some sort of a calculating device. That's right. That's right. And, and so, so, so my, my question, which, which at some point you went over, but it's always curious to hear is like, like when, when did the jump over? Well, let me phrase this another way. Why do you think it is that like the relational database became like the king of databases at some point? Like what, what, what about it and the time that it happened was sort of like, and, and what I, what I mean by king of databases is like, I feel like maybe by revenue, by number of instances that were out there, by people using it, by, by simplistic ways of, of saying it was the king of databases, that it was sort of, it's for many years, uh, it, it probably still is, was just like, that's what people do. In the same way that you would say, like, the combustion engine is the king of locomotion. Relational databases based on um, set theory, relational algebra and set theory. So you know, at a high level, you've got a set of data and you want to reason on it in terms of um, overlaps, intersections, uh, unions, you know, you think of your Venn diagram, right? In terms of, you know, I want to, you want to select and understand the data group by the data. And it's a, it's a natural way to, people want to think about and process the data is to, is as opposed to, for example, um, programmatic processing of data, where you say, um, you know, I want to write a for loop and just um, write a program to process data, and you say while something. I mean, it, that's a very kind of cumbersome way to to deal with large set of data. So, a more natural way is to say, okay, here's a a table of of orders and a table of products and a table of customers, and I want to understand which customers overlap. Which orders, which overlap, which products. Right? So um, fundamentally, that was brought up by EF Cod in the 70s or 80s, and it stuck. Right? It stuck as a way to to store and and query the data. I mean, is it, is it sort of like was it driven by like cost or performance, oh. or maybe oh. even like cognitive knowability? And, and and I asked on the third because like I remember when I was learning relational databases. And like it made no sense to my feeble human mind, <laughs> and, and more specifically, someone who didn't know set theory very well. Like it's just like this whole idea of like joining, putting stuff together, always seemed very like weird. So it's like, and then and then there's the whole like object relational mapping thing, which is this whole sub industry, which is like the translate between uh, object orientation and like relational databases. So like cognitively, a relational database is like its own island of. Um, 
fun, at least from my perspective. And so like across those three characteristics, or maybe a fourth of like cost performance and like uh, no ability, like I'm always curious, like why that became the way of doing things instead of like poet or whatever object oriented database was right. out there, which seemed like cooler. Well, and, and poet came and these, these object databases came after I think relational was already established. But um, and 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 obviously never got um, critical mass or traction because right right and and I guess I guess I bring them up because whatever that initial power of the relational database with was I guess I guess something can clobber itself by being insufficient but I feel like the relational database was just sort of like pushed all the O databases aside it's like no 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 I'm still going to rule the nineties. Sure. Good so, try. I mean, so so the sequence was there was something called some sort of a hierarchical data hierarchical database um, that that IBM was pushing. So so basically, the first thing was um, the the first fundamental thing was the electricity, right? The electric computer. So we went from punch cards to electric computers, and the first databases on electric computers were um, obviously from IBM because IBM was dominating the computer industry. And so um, they were, there was a system called, I think IMS was the name of it. And it was a hierarchical database, which to be honest, I don't know too much about because it's basically obsolete right now. Then, so the, the reason relational came in, uh, as I mentioned before, was that it was, it had a kind of a mathematical um, backing and it also was business practical. So from a, and, and I think the key thing on the price performance, all these things was, was to be honest, the usability and the, the um, kind of from a business point of view, the ability to ask a question and um, really not write any software, but just um, store the data and ask the questions that need to be asked to generate business reports. So it mapped well to, to business. And when it maps well to business, then that drives economics, right? Because there's only so many people who want to buy a huge database, not for business, right? Yeah, yeah. And 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 then and then and then uh, like like I mean maybe maybe I, I think the point you you make the good is it's sort of like it's useful, yeah, <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's it's it, it's easily useful. The usability on it's high. And then and then my last book, like uh, you know walk down the uh, the ivy and crust the memory lane path. So how, how would you describe the relationship between spreadsheets and relational databases? Right? Like, is it, it seems like there's a, uh, I, don't know, I don't know if it's a cart and horse and a chicken and egg type of thing, but they seem like very closely tied together. I think they the are. Yeah, they, yeah. They operate. They are, I think they are very closely tied. And Microsoft Excel probably economically is equally successful as any database commercial product. Um, it doesn't, it, so the, the fundamental, so, so, okay, this, it brings to the, one of the key points about the database business, which is it's extremely hard to implement and there is no solution that has been created by any humans that is the ideal database yet, right? Every major database product has clear known, um, compromises made, whether it be around scalability or, or mostly around scalability and how they do trade-offs. So the trade-off Excel makes, one of the main trade-offs Excel makes, it's a single user system, right? I mean, yeah, sure, you can share the file, but you can't really have 
100 people edit the same spreadsheet at once. Well, I guess with Google Spreadsheet, that changed, but not, um, not atomically, right? If you want to remove money from, from one bank account and add it to another, that's one of the principles of relational databases, which is the acids, the, the, that when you do a transaction, it's guaranteed to either happen or not happen, right? So you can, you can account, you can have an accounting of the world. You can say, this is the current true state. And with locking, you can have the different people update the data. And so if you wanted to just create a single user database, that can pretty much be done in a college project, right? But once it becomes a billion dollar investment is when you want to have concurrency and scale. So Excel is super useful for a person who just wants their own to look, one person to look at some data. Um, it doesn't really have easy ability to do, let's say, um, let's say you had one spreadsheet of orders and one spreadsheet of customers. And then you say, okay, I want to see, give me a report of the average order size per customer. I mean, it could take a while to, to, to make that come out. Whereas it's one line of SQL in a database, right? Yeah, that's true. I, I think I think I spent many late nights trying to understand the theory of pivot table. Just like I, I still don't know, how, I still like, don't know how to use pivot table. <laughs> exactly. Anyhow, uh, we'll we'll come back to uh, to, to uh, more database stuff. Talk about green plum. Before that, uh, there's just a few little news items to go over. Now, you know, there's there's uh, around here we had uh, we had a big release. Pivotal Cloud Foundry 2.2. Now, uh, I think it was Jared who wrote this up, right? Like, I think I think I still I'm going to set aside four hours to read that blog post, <laughs> <laughs> which which I mean more of which I mean more of a complimented way of like uh, there's a lot of stuff on there and uh, it's very well documented. But there's uh, there's all sorts of uh, under the hood and, and uh, I don't need like one of the I was trying to pick out one that that's notable and I think. Uh, Having more detail and controls over auto scaling is always nice because mm -hmm. that's uh, one of the immediate useful things of, of doing anything cloud related is having elasticity and automation, uh, something like scale. So that's nice to see that we have uh, more improvement there. But how about, how about yourself, Richard? If you were to pick out one or two things to highlight, what, what, what are your uh, favorites in there? Yeah, I'm glad you like Jared patented a giant list of things blog post structure for announcements but he makes good use oh, sure. of headings no. and pictures yeah. that makes it very easy to read so that's yeah. a patent pending i was i was i always awaited the uh, back, back in the early 2000s when i was a programmer i waited each release because they would have like 20 page release notes, and it was sure <laughs> as in working the release notes yeah so this is a good one as you mentioned i think the auto scaling stuff which uses this new log cache subsystem for, for reading logs. But I think what's pretty cool about the auto scaling is yes, you can do custom metrics, but there's even some smart things on comparisons. Like, hey, if the maximum is different than this you know, other minimum and both may be custom metrics, you know, like let's say the, you know, the current is approaching the max, maybe that's when you auto scale. So it's not even just like, hey, this number hits some sort of threshold. Maybe it's actually based on two different values coming from the app or from the service. So some really cool stuff coming available now in auto scale and actually it's uh, in pivotal web services as well that's always where you can see these things before it hits the the software itself so that's pretty cool uh the other thing that jumped out to me i think was bosch and cred hub support so bosch cred hub is generally available the runtime cred hub is available this has been a component a part of cloud foundry for 
a year or so now, but it's kind of continually been beefing up. It hasn't been just released at one time. So now CredHub has hit a really nice mature point, storing credentials securely for your apps, for the different credentials within Cloud Foundry itself. So really need to see that available. And then just some, some good infrastructure things, supporting Azure Stack formally, supporting things like deploying to multiple vCenters as part of like an AZ and high availability architecture that has been there before, but there's been some nice new support for supporting multiple data centers on vSphere. So getting these multi-site deployments is tricky. So we want to make sure that we make that simpler. So some good things in there, definitely read the giant release notes that we'll add in the show notes, but good release. We keep marching forward with something good every quarter. And, it, and speaking of releases, although in a way, I, I haven't had time to look at it, but what's the thing about uh, like at any given time, there's like 6% problems happening in your life computation-wise. <laughs> Oh, I'm yeah. sorry. I'm sorry. 6.1% chance of breaking something in a library. Yeah, it's about accuracy, Cote, 6.1%. Uh, so <laughs> I had, uh, it's funny. Sometimes I purposely think about, you know, hey, if I tweet something at, you know, eight o'clock on a weeknight Pacific time, no one sees it. But this was him uh, from DevOps fame and writing the Phoenix Project DevOps handbook. Uh, wrote, just kind of shared this paper that said, look, this, this group monitored 400 open source libraries. And in just like three months, 116 days, they saw 282 breaking changes. So more or less each day, assume there's this 6% chance you're going to have some sort of breaking change in one of your open source libraries. And the reason that stuff matters, and I retweeted this, was that this is why your apps need to be on pipelines. Because your apps are probably, even if your code's not changing, you know, your functionality isn't changing every day, something is changing in your dependencies whether it's a vulnerability, whether it's a breaking change, it's a patch, it's whatever, that your apps, because we now build a lot of code with a lot of dependencies, it's not just encapsulated in stuff I've written. I'm pulling in libraries from all over the place. That means I need to be able to constantly integrate them, test them, and deploy them because I could be sitting here with breaking changes, vulnerability for weeks or months because I only ship software once a quarter. So don't put all your apps on pipelines because you're shipping 30 times a day like some web startup put your applications on a pipeline because you need to constantly update them for things like this. Yeah, you know, I, I've been uh, uh, writing up what I think is maybe the hardest section of stuff to write up about, uh, you know, how to run your IT better, which is like uh, metrics. Like I keep, and I, but that, that's difficult because uh, it's one of the things where like you have to, uh, if you remember several episodes, you know, I tried to ask Josh Long what made it he just wouldn't answer me, so I had to like badger him a lot to draw it out from him. And it's the same thing with metrics. Like you ask someone who actually know what metrics are important, and they go like Socrates, Socratic on you. Like, oh, metrics. Well, what you know, they, they'll never just tell you like you got to measure this, you got to measure this, you got to measure this. And rightly so, things are uh, are relative. But I think I think you know what what uh, what point one percent is alluding to is. Uh, I think of late, there's sort of like two new sort of philosophic approach to what you could call monitoring or operations or whatever. And originally, you have this idea of like uh, the computer systems must be available and perfect, and there is no further discussion. <laughs> and so, so your your job is to keep them up and running. And when it goes red, you're in trouble. Mm-hmm. Whereas, like, there's there's a slight new way of thinking about things, which what what. Uh, what you're talking about here as a representative is, is uh, everything is going to be breaking all the time. And what we care about is how quickly we can fix it. And it's almost like, uh, it's sort of like a point that like Nestine or, you know, in, in a much more abstract way, uh, Nassim Talib makes, right? I don't know, balls of ant or something. 
But essentially, like, what's important is to uh, not be fragile and have a way of covering things, which is a lot of what, like, uh, you know, we I focus on a pipeline is able to uh, deliver business value or useful software, sort of back to the uh, the database point. But it's also valuable for uh, rapidly being able to fix things, which I think is uh, even now like, kind of an underappreciated metric, if you will, uh, how how quickly our how how well our system is at uh, fixing things. So. It is, right. it is a good reminder, uh, or, or I should say proof point, that basically everything is constantly decaying, and we're, we're not so much preventing entropy, we're just making sure that total entropy doesn't happen, uh, you know, before we die. Right. Yeah, and I think your word proof point's the right thing, right? This is a good proof point, that if you thought that app transformation was jamming stuff in containers, throwing it in prod and calling it success, that's not. It's just, you know, you have to also do things that can help improve your velocity, which is adding test coverage, adding other ways to monitor vulnerabilities or monitor dependencies, that sometimes that looks like fool's gold of just, hey, we got to decommission some servers. Yeah, I know, but you have the same problems you had before. And so I think these are nice reminders that these problems will not go away. They're frankly going to increase because any modern development language now really promotes this idea of pulling in dependencies. So again, you don't have these sort of self-sufficient apps anymore. You're instead, as you build a serverless app, right? You're building li- pulling in libraries with thousands of lines of code. So at this point, we are all at the mercy of our dependencies, and you should design accordingly. Mm. At the mercy of our dependencies. That's a good title for some of you. We should suggest that to Jared for his next uh, Tomic blog post. No, I think it's my autobiography title. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and, then, and then finally, uh, the, the uh, like in Azure, there's a, they ship the I guess they GA the open service broker or they have they have that available there, which is, you know, is, I think is emerging as a nice way to uh, whether you want to call it services, backing services or uh, as, as I, I think, annoyingly for the world, still call middleware. <laughs> you know, I, I, I like to be an old fogey, but uh, essentially a way to like look up. Uh, what would you call it? To use a new word, other other things that you and your software rely on to get stuff done, you're not necessarily responsible. Yeah, I mean that fits on a T-shirt right there. I think that's exactly perfect. In very fine print. <laughs> yeah, I mean, how do you consume? Right, it's application and data services, and so the one thing you know, people, I think it's funny, people will kind of forget already, like, wow, this open service broker is cool. I wonder when it comes to Cloud Foundry. Like, it started in Cloud Foundry. Like, that's where, that's where it came from. So what's neat is that, you know, we took the service broker that's been in Cloud Foundry for the, from the beginning, kind of made it this more open source. It was already open source, but made it a more open standard. Now you see Microsoft and other companies building these sort of brokers on that model, bringing them then back to those platforms. So I just thought it was a good news point, good validation that this brokerage model Seems like a nice way to decouple. If you look at 12-factor apps, one of the factors is kind of treating these services as backing services, not embedded in your app, but instead kind of an attachable service. And so the service broker does a great job of that where my same code could just continue to be deployed to dev, test, and prod with no changes. I'm just attaching to different broker instances and therefore connecting to different databases. So a really nice decoupling mechanism. It's cool to see it hit this, this sort of mainstream. Yeah, yeah. And I, and I think, I mean, just in general, to be some sort of prognosticator, I think it's, uh, on, on the one hand, it, it, I think it's notable in the overall cloud world that we don't spend a tremendous amount of time talking about, see, I'll do it right here, middleware. <laughs> like, like at, the, at the moment, we talk a lot about how to packaging container and run things. Yeah. But obviously, uh, you need external services to write 
successful software unless you're writing everything yourself, which would be delightful, but ridiculous. So it seems like hopefully over the next couple of years, there'll be a lot more discussion of here's uh, here's external services or backing services or middleware, how they fit in those things. And in fact, like I think there's, there's almost like a large, uh, uh, what would you call it, uh, glossing over of like all these existing systems that you have, how do you integrate them into uh, your new stuff? And in fact, every now and then, that, that's probably, I don't know if it's a large part, but a, a, as used to say in corporate development, a material uh, amount of the discussion is about uh, how do I interface with non-cloud native services to mm-hmm. make sure they don't uh, slow me down, which that'll be fun to talk about that uh, more. But speaking of external things, we should talk about uh, more, more Greenland related things now. Yeah. Yeah. This is a, uh, a non-traditional guest, Ivan. You should feel very special that we usually do a lot of kind of apps focus on the podcast, yeah. but, but you and I have gotten to be uh, good buddies now. Yep, and yep. one thing we've talked about, actually our last chat, chat which is what's, what kind of sparked this, was you and I talked about data monoliths when we were talking and this idea of kind of data analytics monolith, monoliths, I should say. One thing you've been helping me make sure I do is don't just say data because data could be a database, data could be the literal data. I mean, it's very lazy sometimes just to yeah, refer can, to data. You, there are companies who sell data. They, right, right. They, they're like, um, stand, uh, what do you call it, Dun & Bradstreet. Right. And so one of the things you mentioned was data monoliths and kind of not having data monoliths, much like we talk about with apps, where you know, app monoliths can be beneficial in some cases, but sometimes you're now coupled to a single set of gatekeepers to use them, or you've got deployment challenges because it's all these big bulk deployments. So what do you mean by this idea of kind of data analytic monoliths and how does some of what we're trying to do help break that up? And you know, thinking of the app people mindset, how can they draw these parallels? Well, I mean, the the huge one of the huge trends in the in data analytics has been this idea of creating a corporate data lake, and so probably that's permeated into the app conversation as well. At least you probably have heard of people talking about data lakes, and and we've had now it's now the data lake concept kind of started in around 2008, 9, 10. So we've had enough time to, to kind of see it play out in a lot of cases. And from observation, what I see with the data lake idea is you generally have a, a centrally managed team inside a large corporation who is tasked to collect all of the company's data and to make it available to all of the business users for for business purposes, um, and it, it essentially they're not driven by specific business outcomes, but they're 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 there to provide this kind of shared service, and it it turns out to to look like the the ultimate monolith, in the sense that you've got non-business people driving a data architecture and a collection of storage of information um, that is meant to provide value to all the different business users, but then generally tends to frustrate and, and, and not um, actually satisfy the requirements of most of the business departments. I also see parallels there. I know you'll keep going into the monolith side, but the sort of DevOps challenge in the first place is these ops teams that are somewhat disconnected from business outcomes running these sort of shared services and kind of having to go through that. But I think you also have some other monolithy comparisons as well no i mean it's it's a lot of it starts from whether who's driving the project right is it is so for example if we had a marketing team let's say we're working at uh 
a, um, at widget manufacturer incorporated and the marketing team says, Hey, we could really improve our marketing if we had good data analytics and we're going to drive a project and here's our requirements. That's one point of view. And the other point of view is you've got a central team in widget incorporated that says, we're going to build a data architecture. So the, the data architecture, they're thinking of how to optimize for reducing data copies and, and the cost of the data and how to manage the data, how to track the data, but they're really not coming at it from how do we do marketing? Mm-hmm. So from the, from the first mm-hmm. step you take, the marketing people now have a gatekeeper, which is data architects. And so from the very first step, now they're constantly trying to say, okay, what can the data architecture team give for me? Why not just start with the business and say, hey, let's build, look, what is the ultimate system for marketing? Yeah, I mean, that makes sense. And that's, so I mean, are you seeing the data lake concept fading in popularity as a whole? Are people trying to do things that are more departmental or more local where they're not dependent on these sort of shared data teams and data services? So, so I think the popularity has faded a bit, but not gone away. But having looked at you know, eight years of it and in a position where we get to see lots of different customers, um, there, there's definitely companies that that don't build the, hey, we're a Fortune 1000 company and here's our data lake. And they build basically, you know, departmental specific data systems, maybe using some shared infrastructure or some shared technologies, but it's driven by, by the business. And there are other companies where I've seen build the, the corporate wide system. And the, the ones who are building the departmental systems generally tend to be, from what I can see, um, happy and successful and the the ones building the data lake either end up switching to 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 spin out specific systems or um are always three to four years away in an agile project from um the ultimate delivery and i say agile is kind of as a joke right because you'll see you'll go in and you'll say we're doing this agile and in four years the data lake will be complete and it will provide this. And it's always four years away. I, I, I mean, this leads to the obvious question. So uh, how, how does Greenplum say all of this? What, what, what does it do exactly? And uh, maybe how, how does it reduce that four years? Well, so, so and, and really Greenplum per se is a technology. It doesn't solve, to your guys' previous discussion about if you just take a new technology and use the same mindset, you're not going to fix anything, right? That you're talking about in the previous conversation. So in the same sense, you know, Greenplum by itself is a database. It's not going to solve organizational problems and, and strategy problems. But the so let's start with what is Greenplum? It's a, it's a relational database that's, that's optimized for storing large amounts of data and doing analytical type workloads as opposed to rapid updates to, to state. So you're going to be asking questions like, Given every purchase at a retail store chain in the last 10 years, you know, what was the average purchase volume related to um, consumer goods or related to alcohol? Or, you know, so it allows you to scan through billions of records and ask questions. Um, it's that, and, and that comes back to the question about the idea that there's no perfect database. The world hasn't created one. So every, every database designer creates some sort of compromise. The compromise for Greenplum is it's really not good at transactional um, processing where you're doing um, 
highly concurrent updates, right? It's, it's optimized for um, large high speed reporting type workloads. And so um, the reason that this comes into play as far as the data lake discussion is that um, the trend was so popular that it really overwhelmed the industry to say, let's basically take HDFS and Hadoop and build a data lake and put everything in it. And um, that, that trend um, resulted in people in a, in a kind of a approach, which was to, to get a central IT team driving a data project. And um, that doesn't mean that there aren't people who have not tried to create and, and haven't successfully to some degree created corporate wide databases and enterprise data warehouses, which can be done in Green Plumber or another technology. But the, the, the technology of Hadoop drove people to this approach. And um, they, they kind of has shied away from thinking about it because it's too expensive to create a Hadoop cluster for each department right? and to say, hey, you know, let's build a, uh, an analytical system for marketing and let's build one for finance and, and let's build one for um, R&D. But with a database, it's not too expensive. You can just get 10 servers loaded up with a petabyte of data and start asking questions. And it's, so it's a lower overhead, faster way to, to, to take you know, one petabyte of data and start storing it and asking questions. And this is, I mean, this is software, of course, so you can run this anywhere. Do we, are most of our customers like to run this on premises on their own hardware? Does it require specialized hardware? Or do I just take anything off the shelf and run a Greenplum environment? Again, it's Postgres based. It's about distributed MPP yeah. stuff. So what's it look like? Yeah, yeah. So it's, it is open source um, Postgres-based database. So it takes um, Postgres database and builds it, um, lots of them together to make one large database. Um, as far as the, the hardware, the hardware really is, it's what I like to tell people is that it's, you need the hardware for the type of job you're doing. So don't even think about Greenplum. If, if the type of your job you want to do is to take um, hundreds of terabytes of data from two different tables and then correlate them, you need enough hardware that can Number one, read hundreds of terabytes of data in a reasonable amount of time and do computation on it to do all the different comparisons and shuffling of the data over the network. So regardless of Greenplum, if you wanted to do that type of a report, you're going to need, it's going to run, it can run on a Docker container in, in a MacBook Air, but how long will it take to, to do that type of a processing will take a lot longer if you don't have enough hardware to churn through the data. So you need both CPU, um, network, and disk in balanced proportions to, um, to basically be able to feed that data into the CPUs, do the processing, and enough network speed for, the, for whatever degree you're going to be doing shuffling. So what it tends to be is we, we say premium economy <laughs> hardware. So sure. you don't want first class ticket because it's, it's, it's a waste of money. Um, but you don't want to be sitting in coach. So premium economy means you go to your favorite hardware vendor and say, what do you have that's like normal hardware, but it's the hottest, most expensive version of normal hardware. So you don't want bespoke hardware, which is, you know, some special purpose, um, proprietary hardware that's expensive and because the economics aren't as good. You want commodity mass produced hardware, which is going to be, um, 
give you the, the right economics, but then you want as high performance as possible. So like today they've come out with NVRAM, you know, non-volatile RAM and 100 gig networks and one terabyte RAM servers. So, so why wouldn't you want that if it can make your, your data processing run 100 times faster? In your mind, and I, maybe in your mind, because I'm implying it might be delusional, but what, what makes Green Home kind of stand out, right? This is a mature space. This is not, like analytics is not a new problem we're solving here. Well, so when you look at that, yeah, what stands out to you? But Richard, the point is, is that it isn't a solved. It's not mature, mm. in a sense. Mm-hmm. In other words, there is no perfect database today at all. There's no, there's no like, there is no database in the world that can... Um, can ha- that can scale data and users and can scale um, transactions and analytics both linearly do it with relational SQL. Like, so, so it's, it's a non-solved, it. it's non-solved problem by, by humanity. Mm-hmm. Meaning, so for example, if you look at something like Oracle, it doesn't scale. To, once you get over 100 terabytes, it, it, it starts slowing down um, exponentially. Once you take Greenplum and start scaling it to high volumes of updates, then it, it, doesn't, it doesn't scale, right? And so every database has um, a choke point. So there is no perfect database. And what you want to do is look and see, okay, given the type of workload I'm going to run, what, what makes sense? And then you also want to look at the platforms, right? So one of the huge value props of Pivotal is that we sell software, right? Um, if you look at someone like Amazon, they're selling only services on Amazon, right? So if, if what you're looking for is an Amazon service and you want to work exclusively with Amazon and you want to, you know, be, get, get married to Amazon for the long run, then, then you can use Amazon, right? But if you want a software product that is independent and can run where you want, then, then Pivotal software generally is, is a good approach. Right. So the kind of open source can run on relative commodity infrastructure. I think the database analytics was new to me to some extent when I joined Pivotal as a, I hadn't done much with that. Can you kind of describe what that means that what we offer there? Well, it's a great um, connection back to our Excel conversation. Microsoft Excel provides in spreadsheet analytics, right? You can run machine learning in, or you call it artificial intelligence, right? Because the, the words get used so, so liberally. Right, the artificial intelligence is a bit of a buzzword right now, but ultimately, artificial intelligence is another form of machine learning. Machine learning is another form of statistics. So you've got stuff like regression algorithm, linear regression algorithms. These are all available in Microsoft Excel, right? And so the idea is these are there are important mathematical and statistical functions that you can run on your data in the database you have. So if you have Excel and you've got this big spreadsheet, why would you want to export that data to run um, you know, a standard deviation or, or a linear regression? You want to run it right in place in the spreadsheet, right? The same way, if you've got data in Oracle, you want to run it directly there. And if you have data in Greenplum, you want to run it directly there. So the more that you're doing analytical type processing, the more likely you're going to want a full suite of the most popular algorithms that you can just call as functions directly in the platform you have. And so Greenplum has a full suite of the most popular algorithms for kind of machine learning um, and geospatial analytics and graph analytics and text analytics and all different types of ways to slice and dice 
and do math and and um, algorithms on your data directly where it lives. Hmm. Yeah, that's handy. I guess avoiding extra duplication. Yeah, I mean, why export it? And especially when you have an MPP platform. So if you compare it, for example, Excel, Excel runs on your laptop, right? You can't do a linear regression in Excel and distribute the work to 100 CPUs. But because GreenPlum is MPP, meaning massively parallel, and every query you run will get subdivided by all of the, the different computers that you have assigned to that GreenPlum system, then it's convenient to be able to, um, to run statistical algorithms on hundreds of terabytes of data if you can take one calculation and subdivide it automatically to all the different um, servers available. Go, going, going back to one thing uh, you were saying, I mean, it, is, uh, it's, it sounds like in the, the database world, you also suffer from, I don't know, what I think of as the, uh, the yesterday's AI problem that like, once we figure out some AI thing, it, everyone's used to it and it's totally like meaningless and then we're back to like AI is an impossible problem to solve. It's just like, at some point, facial recognition was this mysterious thing and then we solve that problem. Right. So facial rec- cares about that anymore. Like, but we're still not. So we're still facial not recognition comes in a library <laughs> called OpenCV, right? You could you could just get OpenCV on your laptop and and um, take some snap photos from your webcam and then do facial recognition with Open OpenCV. You can also take OpenCV and in, install it on your Greenplum cluster and have uh, MPP processing of facial recognition. But your point is that the, the word artificial intelligence gets could mean that you've got this like um, intelligence that's in the, in the, like in some science fiction movie where it's been uploaded into the internet, right? In the ultimate. Exactly. Set. And it escaped the mainframe. Yeah. But in, in practice, there's, there's very specific um, mathematical algorithms that have been invented that do specific jobs. And those are all available. And so when people say, hey, you know, I go to, let's say I go to a random customer in a random country and they say, I want to do artificial intelligence. They say, great, what do you want to do? Artificial intelligence. They're like, okay, for what? To, to have artificial intelligence. I'm like, right, to, to solve what? <laughs> Once you get to, do you want to have like a, a, a cyborg computer running your business? And they're like, maybe. Once you get to a specific problem, then you don't actually need some artificial intelligence. You need an algorithm that can do, let's say, detect crop failure by looking at pictures of the farm, right? And that's just, to your point, a mundane algorithm that was invented 30 years ago and just run it on a large amount of data. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that, that, that sort of bumps up against the other, the other question I had before we wrap up is like, how... Like, you know, you're saying you could do, you could run, uh, you know, your facial recognition over here, or you could run it like in, in green plum or, or all these things. Like how, how do you like advise people to figure out what to run in your database versus run on your own? Like, is there, is, is yeah. there sort of like obvious answers to that or does it get nuanced at some point? It's fair. I think it's fairly obvious. I mean, if, if your use case doesn't have any kind of, requirement to have a database in it then you wouldn't use a database like if you just said i have these files of data and i want to calculate something and then i want to take those results and put it somewhere else so there's no database requirement right but once you start wanting to 
have storing varieties of data and start interacting with it and asking different questions, now it starts sounding more like a database. So the question is, do you, you, you wouldn't force the use of a database when all you want to do is do a job, right? Let's say a batch job or a, or a streaming job, a very tailored specific thing. But if, if you want to start asking interactive questions, the, the, the beauty of the database is that you put in any arbitrary SQL, there can be billions of possible SQLs, and then it can calculate the most efficient way to, to answer that question without you writing the procedural code like in Go or in Java or whatever to, to get back that result. Right? You can say, start writing complex queries and say, I want to select this and this and this and then group it by this and filter it by that. Why would you want to do that by hand? But if you don't have any use case to query a database, then I wouldn't put it in a database. Yeah, and, and, and so, I mean, to grossly oversimplify, it's basically like uh, in, in your application layer, you're sort of like displaying and inputting data maybe. But then when it comes to like querying it and manipulating it, it's probably a good default thing to like do it in your database layer rather than having your application figure all of that. Like, you know, grab some big data set and sort it all for you and figure out how you want to do something highly likely the database will do that much better than you'll be yeah. able to code on. Yeah, I think, I think exploring the data, you're more likely to get benefit from a database. But then once, you know, a lot of times if you had a, let's say an app, um, let's say you had a, you know, a taxi application, right? There's, there's probably certain things that you want to productionize outside the database where, where it's known, known workflows, right? You said, okay, I want to have an API to display you know, taxis within some region of me. So probably that's, that's a well-known enough problem that you don't need to ask arbitrary questions in a database. You can maybe do it more efficiently um, with some other sort of a platform where you, where you create a pipeline to get that data, process it, push it out into some sort of in-memory cache and make it available through an API. Now that makes sense. Well, well then finally, uh, you know, by nature of being open source, there's a certain like visibility into the uh, the team and the product management and things like that. But like, how like how how does how does how does the the Green Plum development organization work? Like, like uh, how do you go about doing doing the work? Are, are you on like big monolithic five year release cycles? So so it's interesting because we Green Plum started as a startup, then was part of EMC, and then. Um, became part of Pivotal. And when we, when the Greenplum product became part of Pivotal, we, we basically went through a full agile transformation ourselves. I mean, we had a team of a hundred people in R and D and we essentially are a case study in, in transforming a team from, um, from let's say non-agile development practice to agile development practice. And so we, we use concourse. Um, we have, um, we use we have weekly sprints through using Pivotal Tracker. We use all of the Pivotal Labs methodologies. We have um, pair programming, um, and then releases. We can release within 24 hours when whenever we want to do a release. So we always keep the the code shippable. And um, but however, we do want to time releases. We found that with enterprise customers, there is an art to timing so they don't want to get a database update every day and they there's also when do you create 
API changes, right? So if you if it's backwards compatible, that's one thing. But if you if they need to change something on their code, there's only a very you know certain frequency they can do that. So we're shippable at any time. We generally ship patches every four weeks um, to keep it digestible. And then, um, but yeah, we're I think we're a great case study, and I personally learned a lot on how to transform an organization into agile development piece by piece while while the car is driving <laughs> that's a pretty awesome story well uh thanks for being on for people like myself who are maybe even willfully ignorant of these things what would you point them to to uh read up more what's what's a good like starting path my my starting recommendation is youtube we put a lot of energy into youtube and so we've got over 100 different videos talking about geospatial analytics and text analytics and containerization. And I, I would go to YouTube and check that out. It's easy, digestible um, place to get some quick info. Yeah, that makes sense for sure. Well, great. As always, this has been Pivotal Conversations. If you want to uh, find our back catalog, you can go to soundcloud.com slash Pivotal Conversation. Now, maybe you can load all the uh, MP3s into a database and do some kind of uh, analysis of like, What's the ratio between helpful things Richard says and a name gobbledygook I say? That would be a fun metric. We well, should make a chart of that. And I, and I, I'll try to improve over time. I just have to tell you, we did a study with a talk show host, and we found out that the audience started drifting when the talk show host started talking. And the broadcast <laughs> company ended up having to replace the host because of that analytics. See, that would be useful. We should figure that out. We can, uh, we can, we can use some. It'll, it'll be like that. That would be some. I guess it would be Black Mirror, not Twilight Zone anymore. Yeah. I, I always think of. Uh, I was speaking of AI. I always think of that one Twilight Zone episode where there's like a big computer and the CEO is very happy to replace all these workers, and eventually the computer replaces the CEO. Right. And uh, maybe, maybe we should just have a really complicated query that replaces Richard and I on this show. Right. And it'll just spit out, spit out some results. <laughs> well, on, on that, on that optimistic note for humanity, uh, we'll see everyone next time. Bye bye.